Hey everybody, it's Zero Killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast that votes deep dives into the killers we love to learn about. Every week, Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonate with us. And then I will lead you down the darker path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and most importantly, how they got caught. Then Brian ends our podcast with a touch of the paranormal, a story about cryptids, or just the creepier side of life. And we just want to say thank you for listening so much, especially because we've been so inconsistent this year because so much has been going on. Last weekend, Brian was sick. I ended up subbing in for a documentary, and so we just had to push it off. I did make a post on TikTok for those of you, but everybody was like, when's it coming back? Are you coming back? And yes, the answer is (laughs) always yes. Uh, and so this week in true crime, I'm going to talk about something and it's very relevant to all of us because a lot of people who are here and listening right now who are people in a true crime and it has been just a bee in my bonnet for the last two to three weeks as the Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix show has come out and I bit my tongue because people are allowed to have their feelings about the show and whatnot, but, um, it's kind of pissing me off that it's being called a 10-part docu-series. This is not a documentary. It's a fictionalized account of what happened. From what I understand, there's a fair amount of very visceral um, homosexual scenes that may be rape. Uh, Not interested in seeing that. And so now that people have watched it and it's been out for a couple weeks, there have been all these these news articles popping up. Fact versus fiction what's real what's not real in the netflix monster jeffrey dahmer story and i'm like well i'm gonna tell you a lot's gonna be not real because it's not true crime and this is like a a real sticker for me because it's not true crime if you have to make up details if you have to fill in gaps with fictional accounts it's not true crime it's a dramatic retelling it's the same as the gabby petito story that's coming out on lifetime it's the same as the thing about pam that is a uh, which what episode what season is what show what series is that on um, um NBC yeah there you go yeah yeah um I guess uh, and then what's wild about this is that there this was supposed to be a Peacock production and then that got shut down and NBC took over and I'm just like you should have let it die <laughs> and I get that Renee Zelliger is the lead character and she's a very great actress just like Evan Peters is a very great actor yes um. And I, I knew that Evan would do, uh, he would do it well because he does creepy well. But now people are saying that they combined two different serial killers for the Dahmer. Do- I'm like, can we even call it a Dahmer? You, you combined his story with somebody else's story. Oh, who do they, uh, who else did they combine him with? I'm trying to look for it in this article right now that somebody sent to me, um, but that they may have gotten some of the like personality traits from a different person. Um, apparently they, it's interestingly enough that they, appear, uh, that Netflix kind of, they oomphed up the negativity of what happened with a uh, Balsersack and Gabrish. Those are the two officers, uh, John Balsersack and Joseph Gabrish, who returned a 14-year-old Connor Axenthasm phone to Dahmer's house after he ran away, literally bleeding from both his anus and his skull. And they were super hostile to the black women who called it in, and they continued to be hostile to um, people who were worried about that kid. And I guess in the the show, they, they had the guys become officer of the year. That never happened. 
Um, we didn't need to make that seem more ridiculous than it always already was. The reality of the situation is that these two cops didn't care about this child. They just uh, listened to what Dahmer said and brought him back into the house where he would later be killed. Um, the issue is that originally the community called for them to be fired and they were, they got reinstated and eventually John Balserzak became president of the Milwaukee police officers union. Um, and I believe Joseph Gabrish left Milwaukee. Uh, be- I'm probably because of the negativity. I would, yeah, been, I mean, I would, yeah. yeah, I mean, but the fact is he should have never been a police officer another day in his life because he did not do his job because he was icked out by the potential of it being gay. Yes. You know, we didn't need to change that story, though. By itself, it's already horrible. By itself, what happened there is already unfathomable and disgusting and terrible. We didn't need to try and like oomph it up and go, oh, it's even worse. They got given police officer of the year. Nobody even does those awards. I don't know. It's just really annoying. <laughs> and the thing about Pam was really upsetting because um, they interviewed. Um, so uh, people don't know. Um, this is about um, Pam Hupp, a woman. She murdered uh, another woman named Betsy uh, Faria in 2011. And they interviewed Betsy Faria's daughter um, and other family members for this. And they were told the family was told that it was going to be a documentary. Instead, it was turned into a fictionalized story where they made Pam Hupp like quirky and funny. It, it was like, um, what's that movie that Renee Zellweger did? Um, the goofy one with the two British guys who liked her. Oh, um, God, what is that called? That's, that's her big movie, right? <sighs> yeah, yeah, it was. Um, goodness gracious. I haven't seen it. Like, uh, Bridget Jones. There, there we go. go. They, I feel Jones like Diary. they made Pam Hupp a little Bridget Jones. In, in terms of being like a quirky, cool character. And I just feel like I'm just not really a big fan. And I know that that comes off as slightly hypocritical um, because I am someone that I just did the, I did my fifth documentary appearance. But the thing about true this for me and the true crime for this for me is that I don't need to make up monsters. We have real ones. Yeah. They're right here. They're every day around us. And we are trying to learn about those real monsters right now. And we're trying to learn about like, what made this person do this and and what sort of intricacies happen in their life and yes there are things that we've learned from from researching these people and and seeing i mean that's literally how fbi profiling began mm-hmm. because they they learned they looked at the information they talked to the people they learned from what happened and they learned patterns on how to find these people you know and i think true crime is still huge because People want to understand humanity. And I don't think we need to fictionalize any serial killers. I don't need to uh, fictionalize Ted Bundy with a, you know, cute boy from high school musical. Didn't need it. <laughs> he's Zach. a grown man now. He's a grown man now. I forget his name. No, Zach Efron. Zach Efron. Yeah, he's he's a grown man now. But we didn't need that either. And I didn't watch that either. And I won't be watching Dahmer. And I won't be watching Gabby Petito. I won't be watching any of these shows. Because... I just, that's my personal position. And like I said, I'm sure some people will probably find me to be a hypocrite because I spend literally all of my excess time doing this. But I just feel like this is a separate genre that should not be connected to true crime in any way. Because my thought process is, right, if I make a movie tomorrow about the assassination of JFK, Hmm. 
right? He died 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody from the original story is in it. And it's all my interpretation of what happened that day. That's not a, a documentary. That's not a historically true thing. <laughs> That's just me making up a story about the president. Also, I'm sorry if my voice cracks today. I I started a new job at a new school and um my fellow teachers wanted to go out last night and I haven't gone out <laughs> since before quarantine. So uh. I was out drinking in an arcade and yelling. Playing like um Mario Kart and stuff. Oh God. <laughs> I won one time. But anyway, I'm done with my story. That's how I feel about it. You are welcome to sound off and send us a message. I will even leave a uh little uh Spotify uh question poll. poll so you can tell you. me if you think that we should be having these fictionalized accounts or not. But I'm gonna get off my soapbox. Oh goodness, Brittany. <laughs> what nothing nothing i i I agree like 100 percent with you on all that um well speaking of true crime Mm -hmm. my story this week um so apparently police are still doing some type of investigating on the moore's murders really are we still trying to find the bodies yes so nice yeah, um, so British police were um, contacted by, I guess, an author who was researching um, the, the death of one of the one of the kids, mm-hmm. um, a twelve year old. His name was uh, Keith Bennett. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, you know, we, we you know. About a, I know. <laughs> that was sheesh. That was way back. Um, yeah, that was first like season. February of the first season. Yeah, that was our, definitely our lonely. Our one of our uh, yeah, the Morris murders was the 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 couple killers or killer. I'm couples. trying to remember the episode number. <laughs> <laughs> that was season one, episode eight. Oh goodness, um, yeah. So this twelve year old boy who was killed in nineteen sixty four um this author he you know he, i guess he's researching about it and you know he contacts bridge police about it and um he's like maybe we like maybe we may have found something to the police so um please go out to you know the moors of course and they find a body. Um, they find well. They find remains, human remains, uh, out in the moors. They have been looking for years. Yeah. Over and over again. Yeah, the police said that uh, we were informed that he had discovered what he believes are potential human remains in a remote location on the moors. Um, <clears throat> the site was access late last night and like they like this started they started doing like this re- um he started doing his research like thursday and then he called him on friday and friday they started going out there to do this um this uncovering and stuff okay. um but yeah it's uh they, they're saying it's it's far too early to be certain if the remains are human um but like there are remains out in the moors still that have not been found 
Um, guys, go back and listen to that episode. It's a really great episode. Um, I'll it's tell you what. Now. Yeah, it's grim for it's, sure. It's really. <laughs> well, I see a two a update from two hours ago. They're out there posting the pictures of them with the blue tents, mm-hmm. excavating. Yep. Um, yeah, they're just like, we got nothing. They haven't found, I said, no physical evidence of a jawbone or skull. Nothing yet. And then also, on top of that, conditions are difficult right now because of the weather. Yeah. Um, but they're going to do their best. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Wasn't, the, uh, okay, so I'm reading this. I think it's it's saying that the last body was like found in the, in the 80s. He's the only one they never found. Yeah. They've been over time been able to. I'm trying to remember because she's still alive. Um, His mama. No, uh, Myra. Uh, oh, Myra. That's right. She's still in. Um... Uh, he the the husband is dead, but yeah, he died. They were husbands, but you know what I mean. Almost Yeah, but Ian Brady. Ian really is still alive, and she went out multiple times. Um. To try and show them where she remembered where it could be. Mm. And they were like. Nothing's happening, Myra. <laughs> yeah. And it's sad because his mom, like, um, Keith's mom, Keith's Ben's mom, she's like, I read, she's like, she was out there, like, trying to dig up stuff as well, just searching until she died in 2012. Yeah. And it's just. That's the sad part. She died never knowing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that's like a little update on the Moors. Um. Hopefully, and they... it's just such a huge area. And yeah. Like, like the thing is, like, one bodies one, two, and three were found very close together. At least as far as you you know. Mm. And then four was found in this one other big area. But then there's this whole huge area. So if they moved from their general dumping site, like who knows. But yeah, so Leslie Ann Downey was found in 1965. John Kilbride was found in 1965. Pauline Reed was found in 1987. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think that was the last one they found, right? Yeah. So we still have Keith Bannon. Well, best of luck. And hopefully you guys find him. And this I is the body so. they were looking yeah. for. But yeah, that's what I got. That's okay. Um, yeah. So here's the thing. I spent two weeks talking about a modern day serial killer. And so this week we are rolling back time to discuss a woman killer from the late 1800s, early 1900s, which just seems to be the time when women were just chopping people left and right. Just like, I don't know what it was about the time. They were just... just... Everybody was getting... Ganked. Have you ever heard the name Jane Tapan? 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 Tapan. I don't know how to say her last name. <laughs> I have not, no. Well, she is believed to have potentially killed well over 100 people. Um, there's a multitude of hospitals she worked at that they never knew that she did anything, really. Uh, and so, the well, there's years of her doing weird stuff to patients. Um and well she admitted to 31 in the end 
but it's a very this is a weird story and it's just gonna be weird and i'm just gonna go for it okay okay <laughs> all right so her she was born honora kelly on march 31st 1854 to irish immigrant parents bridget and peter kelly her mom died of tuberculosis when she was just a baby and her dad was a very serious alcoholic people in boston called him kelly the crack as in crackpot um he had a lot of really serious issues and when he was when uh honora was about six years old he was just like i cannot take care of children so he takes honora and her older sister delia who was eight and drops them off at the boston female asylum and boston female asylum was his orphanage for girls he completely surrendered them and went on to eventually blind himself by sewing his own eyes shut later in life so that's dad the asylum wrote in their record that they had rescued these girls from a very miserable home and honora and delia uh, they did have an older sister who was in her teens but she obviously could not take care of two small children um and uh that older sister nelly uh later got committed to an asylum for her mental health so i wonder if she had some of the same problems that her dad did mm. Now, Honor is described as having an olive complexion with dark eyes, black hair, strong nose, and jaw. Um, she did not fit the mold of the average child who got adopted. Um, some people thought she was Italian, but uh, being Italian wasn't all that great in the late 1800s, and neither was being Irish. So it wasn't exactly getting you treated well. Uh, in November of 1862, Honor is 8 and Delia is 10. We don't really know much about Delia other than the fact that she eventually ran away from the orphanage and got into survival sex work. And, but Honora gets sent to a home, not a foster home or adoption, but as an indentured servant in Lowell, Massachusetts, which blew my mind. I didn't realize that like their thought process was, listen, if you don't get adopted, we just send you to somewhere you can work. But she ends up working in the house of Mrs. Anne C top end uh i just apparently if you were an orphan you had to pay your own way until somebody adopted you honora would go on to call her auntie Anne, and that's about as familiar as this woman was going to get with her ever they did allow her to change her last name to top but Anne spent every moment she could reminding honora that she came from inferior blood she'd say things like you can't help being irish but doesn't doesn't mean you have to act like a patty which I didn't know at the time was that Patty was a pejorative word for Irish people. Yeah, um, yeah that, I didn't realize that was a slur back then. It's not anymore, but wow. Um, and here's the thing. Honor had been adopted into like a wa- the wasp world of the Northeast. And for people not in the U.S., when we say wasp, what we mean are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And uh, so Honor did what a lot of abused kids do. She started overcompensating. She became as smart as she could, as funny as she could. She learned how to be very charismatic. You all right over there? Are you Are you feeling the... I'm good. I'm good. All right. Honora also began exhibiting kinds of signs of ethnic self-hatred. No, I thought you were having that moment that we always have when we talk about how, like, kids who were, like, abandoned when they were young yeah, overcompensate yeah. when we uh, get older. Yes, yes. Now I was like, I was like, are you all right? Because uh, I, I know I'm uh, I'm tapping your trauma just a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> mine too. Mine too. Um, 
but yeah, so uh, Honora starts exhibiting ethnic self-hatred and she would lie about being Irish and she would mock Catholics because that's the Protestant thing to do. Um, she would make fun of other Irish kids and uh, well, Honora's position as a subordinate in the family was a weird thing that contributed to her strangeness. She actually would live with this family until she was 28 years old. She never officially got adopted and was pretty miserable. Um, the Toppin family had a biological daughter named Elizabeth who was adored by her family. That really served as a reminder to Honora that she was nothing more than a well-dressed worker. Sometime during her time with the Toppin, she changes her name to Jane. I guess so that it would be something less ethnic and it might grant her some better treatment. Mm -hmm. And when that didn't work, Jane started becoming a bully at school. She was a gossip. She spread rumors, snitched on anybody and everybody which got her in good with the teachers, but not with the other students. She had a really like bubbly personality, but it was totally superficial, even when she was little. She was actually really selfish, and she showed a lot of signs of ego and stubbornness and even deceit at a young age. She told everyone her father was an explorer who traveled to China and lived there. She made up a brother who fought at Gettysburg and got a medal from President Lincoln. Her sister was a beauty queen in London. And she was also prone to do very spiteful things to people she didn't like and then blame it on somebody else. And here's the thing. When Jane's behavior gets out of hand, letters go home. Her foster mom, Anne, not too happy. And uh, so she would beat Jane, you know, the old days. We don't, was it a spare the rod, spoil the child? <clears throat> and Jane saw this as unfair because you're not really my mom. Um, and it made her detest her auntie Anne. But she especially hated Elizabeth. Elizabeth got treated like a real daughter. Elizabeth had a natural social ranking because she wasn't Irish and she had family who loved her. And as the two got older, Elizabeth became more beautiful and Jane remained kind of homely and strong jawed as she always was. Boys flocked to Elizabeth, but not to Jane. Um, there's a rumor that when Jane was in her early 20s, she fell in love with a man and he worked as an office worker and he proposed to her with a ring that had a bird engraved on it. And he had to move for work. And when he moved into a boarding house in Holyoke, he fell in love with the landlord's daughter and abandoned Jane for the other woman. Now, whether that happened or not, Jane never got married or really went on dates or got courted. She was about five foot three and 170 pounds, which was considered to be so overweight at the time. Listen, I looked at it as in the late 1870s. This is a direct quote that it said the ideal woman was five foot five and 138 pounds. If she be well formed, she can stand another 10 pounds without greatly showing it. And for those of you not speaking 19th century, if she got a booty or some boobs, they don't mind if she's a little heavier. But oh Jane was well past the 10 pounds and they didn't like it. And she was shorter. Jane was lonely and her foster sister had all these men courting her. So she turned to romance novels like The House of Dreams Come True or Miss Mar Marjorie of Silvermine and The Princess of the Purple Palace. These books worked for a little while, but eventually it's not enough. And when Jane reached 18, she got a $50 payment and that was the end of her indentured servitude. This is the largest amount of money she ever got from Auntie Anne. And when Anne died a couple years later, Jane was not included in the will. Everything went to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth got married and became Mrs. O.A. Brigham. She married a deacon named Oram. 
Elizabeth was used to Jane being there as her servant, so she was like, you want to stay? And so Jane stays there for another decade, harboring all this resentment for her foster sister, who had everything handed to her and every opportunity on the table. And that resentment kind of comes to a head. And we don't know if Jane had enough with Elizabeth or Elizabeth just had enough, but in 1885, Jane moves out. Elizabeth's like, you can come back and visit whenever you want. There'll always be a room here for you. Um, but speaking from experience, that's not how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't likely Elizabeth was being kind for public reasons, but I'm sure she had to have known that Jane like didn't like her. But in 1885, Jane's 30, 28, she got no job outside of house cleaning, no money, no social position, no family, and she's all alone. And this is a time in history where a woman's place was in the home and there weren't a whole lot of jobs for women. She could be a teacher, a seamstress, a textile worker. Jane did not want to be a governess for a couple spoiled rich kids. She did not know how to sew, and she did not want to do backbreaking labor in the mills. She wanted a living wage, and she didn't want to be destroyed. And here's the thing. Jane is an abandoned, abused kid who turned into a pretty nasty adult. But in 1887, she's like, you know what makes sense? I'm going to go be a nurse. Now, I'll give you some comparison. Nursing is one of the most highly regimented jobs in the U.S. It's actually stricter than, say, being a police officer. But nursing in the 19th century is nothing like it was today. There was no formal training, really. Um, A pretty scary example of this would be that in New York City, the Bellevue Hospital was run by former inmates of a woman's workhouse at Blackwell Island Prison. And Blackwell was a spot for, like, drunks and prostitutes who would get parole if you agreed to be a nurse. Most of those people didn't even know how to read books and were just trying to stay out of prison. So patient care was pretty low. But Boston in the 1850s wasn't much better. The state legislature had formed a sanitary commission to create some kind of rules around nursing. And their rulings were pretty much, women should be nurses and we need to make a nursing school for them to learn. And then for 23 years, they did absolutely nothing. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Proof that the government was useless 200 years ago, too. Oh, man. But the first training facility for nursing would be in Cambridge Hospital in 1873. And in 1887, Jane applied for admission. It was a two-year program, and it was awfully hard. You had to work seven days a week, 50 weeks a year. You didn't get off for Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving, ensuring that anyone with a family was not going to take this job. They were housed in a small dorm where three women slept in what I wouldn't even call rooms. Maybe like it was like a big room that was like cubicles mm-hmm. and they put three women in each cubicle. You woke up at 530 every day, made your bed, made your own breakfast, went to a morning prayer and you had to be ready and at work by 7 a.m. Then you worked 12 to 14 hour days and you had a total of 75 minutes across the day for both lunch and your dinner. Uh, lunch and dinner were supplied by the hospital, but the items were so bad that most of the women spent their money on extra food. Uh, your first month, you were a trainee on probation, and they gave you pretty much the worst job. Scrubbing the floors, cleaning the chamber pots, dirty bedding. Your second week, they give you a couple patients on top of your cleaning duties. You work alongside the head nurse, learning how to do basic things like give baths, put on clean bandages, fix bed sores, treat wounds, give an enema, give medication. And it sounds awful, and it, it was awful. But you better not let your head nurse hear you complain because you had to do this with a smile. Um, if you if you were found complaining at all, you were a troublemaker. You could not smoke, drink liquor, get your hair and nails done, go to dance halls. This is all in the rule book. But say you make it through that first crap month, right? Mm-hmm. Now you sign an agreement with the hospital to stay on for two years. 
and they're going to pay for your lodging, for your uniforms, and you get $7 a month. Looking into inflation, that is $218 today. That's not a lot of money. Hey, still making more money. Okay. Two hundred okay. a month, Brian. <laughs> With that money, you had to pay for outside clothes, textbooks, anything that you needed. Once you hit trainee status, you now have a total ward, pretty much, to take care of. Fifty patients, and your daily duties are doing catheters, draining wounds. Your ward has to be clean and warm, which means you're doing housekeeping stuff, but also you have to make sure the sh- the furnace is working, has enough coal, the lamps have kerosene. Uh, you have to that's... prepare the meals, change beds, and make sure the writing quills are sharp to take notes. See, that's when we that's that's where the phrase that's not my job description comes in. <laughs> See, no, this is part of your job description. It's all part of your job description. Uh, no, 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 it's doing too much. Well, <laughs> once a week after you attend uh, after work, you had to attend a lecture in the medical theory by the hospital doctors. And that could be on anything, dentistry, hygiene, diabetes, obstetrics, surgery, pediatrics, nerve disorders. Pretty much they just grabbed a doctor and were like, here, talk for an hour. (laughs) And Jane did this and she did it with a smile and she won her way through school. At the end of two years, you get examined by a board of doctors. And if you pass, you get a little diploma. The test is designed to be really hard and cover pretty much anything and everything medical they'll throw at you. But it really relied heavily on knowing medications. And Jane was very good at that. In fact, Jane's so good at her job, they start calling her Jolly Jane. She's got an excellent bedside manner. And after spending 22 years as a servant, cleaning was a piece of cake for her. The other nurses, however, were like, she's a brown noser. And just like in high school, she loved to pit women against each other with rumors. She never got in trouble, though. Twice, however, during training, her lies got other people fired. And again, Jane reinvents herself. She picked up new things she liked to do. Steal. (laughs) Hospital supplies. Money from patients. Nobody could ever prove it, but they were sure that it was her. And uh, as time, she passed her first exam and became kind of like a minor nurse in 1889. And she was about to take her first step into illegality, though. See, Jane become, she get close to certain patients. And she'd want to spend all her time with the people she liked. She wants them to leave, so she starts falsifying documents to make them stay a little longer. Nothing a little, nothing illegal. Maybe she just writes that this person had a fever. Maybe give them a medicine that made them feel a little bit sick. So they'd stay in the hospital for another week. Innocent. But for the patients she didn't like? Oh, Jane was not so good. She really hated older people. And she would laugh and say to the other nurses, there's no use keeping old people alive. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, because Jane was just like so funny, and they didn't. She didn't mean that. Her humor is just dark. That's all. <laughs> right. Well, on her own time, she's buying books about medications and asking her mentors about how different poisons work. In fact, one of Jane's favorite books was about opium, and we think of opium in the modern age as the drug that led to the creation of heroin. So I have to explain this. Opium comes from the sap of an unripe poppy bulb. Opium counts morphine as one of its main ingredients, which works to suppress the pain receptors in the brain. Heroin is a synthetic substance that uses opium as the primary active ingredient. And throughout history, we used opium like it was aspirin. Mm. 
They gave it to an infant if the baby was teething, women for cramps, dysentery patients, and Jane was obsessed with opium. But she didn't start with it. Um, unlike many angels of death, Jane wasn't really trying to make her patients' lives better. She was using them as lab rats to see how drugs affected them. And she started with morphine, just pure morphine. She'd just eject a little bit and then she'd just watch and see how their eyes dilated or their breathing got louder and labored. She'd watch as they get sweaty. Of course, she had to be careful, though, because too much morphine and the person just slips into a coma and dies. Mm. Um, way too much, their breathing stops almost immediately. But she'd find the perfect amount to make this person go into like convulsions. And then she'd just sit and watch. And then she moved to mixing morphine with atropine. Atropine is a medicine that can be used to, to treat a low heart rate. Uh, back in the 1800s, though, we were using it for everything. Asthma, earaches, night sweats, seasickness, tetanus, whooping cough. Um, now, when she would, like, mix this medicine and give them the atropine and the morphine, they would have, like, muscle control failure. Um, and then they would laugh and be giddy and delirious. And they'd pull at things that they could only see themselves. And Jane would watch them do all this. And finally, before death, they'd kind of clutch the bed and just go. Later on, Jane would refer to poisoning as a habit of her life. But the truth of the matter is, um, Jane Jane was a, a weird one. She doesn't fit any of the normal angel of death things because she's into this for the sexual gratification. We don't see this with her kind of killing. Um, she would like get in bed with them while they were dying. Uh, and like hug them uh, it, it it was it was a sexual thing it's not good uh, oh okay okay in 18 so in 1888 despite her mixed reputation at work she's like it's time for me to go to big do bigger better things so she wants to go to massachusetts general hospital which is renowned for being one of the best nursing programs in the country then and now um jane's admission came with glowing reviews from cambridge but there was some pushback. Um, Jane had actually been kind of honest about her upbringing. And that caused the head nurse and some other snobby folks to be like, I don't know if she's good enough to come to Lancaster. I mean, Massachusetts General <laughs> Hospital. Sorry, that one's down the street. <laughs> yeah, it is. So they, they're like, fine, we'll let you in, but we'll put you on probation. And Jane crushes this probation period. She's so good that when the head nurse had to take like a leave, a, a leave of absence the following year. Jane was her temporary replacement. MGH is like, she's incredible. Why would they ever think that she wasn't? The other nurses also hate her here too. Just before she presented herself as this like incredible person. She takes credit for other people's work. She changes charts and medical records. She's stealing medicine. Even the doctors who liked her a lot were like, this is weird. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. We don't know how many people that Jane could have killed with all this experimentation. We just don't. Um, unfortunately, because a lot of Jane's patients would just bleed out. Um, and we don't know if that was her because we were still practicing bloodletting in the 19th century. Um, and we also used medicine called strychnine for stomach ailments. 
I feel like you probably know Strychnine. I've heard of it, t- yeah. We talked about it before with other people, yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty much rat poison. Yeah. <laughs> it's not arsenic, but it, it has a similar effect. And I'm sure a lot of people died because we were poisoning them with what we thought was good medicine, not just because of Jane. So here's the question. How do we know what her MO was, really? Well, one of Jane's early victims survived. And her name was Mrs. Amelia Finney. She was 36 years old and she had a uterine ulcer. The treatment at this time was to burn it with silver nitrate. Just a reminder, this is on the edge of your uterus. You say silver nitrate? Yes. Oh, God. Okay. This is the edge of your uterus and that that hurts real bad. Um, It was a way to cauterize the ulcer. Mm. And they said it could shorten the recovery time, but it hurts like hell. And we didn't have much in the way of anesthesia at the time. So afterward, Amelia is just in horrible pain, just incapable of sleep. And Amelia, does, she doesn't talk about what happens here until Jane goes to prison. But she says she's laying in her bed, feeling pretty awful. And a nurse comes over to her. And Jane's like, how are you feeling? And Amelia's like, please get me a doctor. I need help. And so Jane's like, no, no worries. I have something that will help you. And she lifts Amelia up with one arm and forces a glass to her lips and tells her to drink. Amelia's like, this is very bitter, but it made her feel numb all over her body. And then she felt like her throat was dry and she was very drowsy. And this wasn't the worst thing that would happen. But what freaked Amelia out was that Jane got into bed with her and began like petting her hair and kissing her face and whispering like, everything will be all right soon. Um, At one point, Jane leaned over Amelia and pulled her eyelids open. And she said that Jane sounded excited. When Jane tried to force her to drink more of the glass, Amelia refused and she shut her mouth and tried to twist her head away from Jane. Mm. And as quickly as this whole bizarre moment happens, it's over. And Jane rushes away from her because someone else is in the halls. Amelia passes out and she's woken up by another trainee named McCutcheon. And um, Amelia's like, she's like, I felt like I was drinking and I was nauseous. It took her hours to come back to herself. And then she wasn't sure if anyone would believe her. They'd be like, oh, you were just delirious from the pain. Um, But her her weird nighttime activities go undetected. But her other weirdness gets her in trouble at Massachusetts General. See, Jane is not very ladylike. And most hospitals at the time followed the Florence Nightingale method for their nurses. Meaning that you had to be two things. You had to follow orders and you had to look like a lady. Prim and proper. And prim and proper ladies were cheerful, respectfully religious. They never complained. And there was complete submission to authority, like that of the military. Jane hmm. was meticulous in her work. But her peers thought she was a thief and a liar and of low moral character. They, like, suspected that she stole from the cash box of the hospital, the storeroom, she had a diamond ring from a dying patient. They couldn't prove it, but they were over her. And she makes a mistake in 1890 when she leaves her ward without permission. And her supervisors already hate her, and they use this to get her kicked out. So even though Jane had already passed all of her exams and they had already signed her diploma, they kick her out without her license. So Jane goes into private nursing, and she gets jobs immediately in Cambridge and Lowell, Massachusetts. Immediately, she gets glowing recommendations. In the fall of 1890, she goes back to Cambridge Hospital for her license. Rinse and repeat. Doctors and patients love her. Coworkers hate her. 
She tries to kill a 19-year-old trainee named Maddie Davis. Maddie gets sick, and they put her in the, the best nurse's ward, Jane. Maddie has a fever, and after spending time with Jane, she files a report that says that Jane gave her medicine that made her seize up and violently collapse. A doctor named Cleland was walking by, and he saw her fall and save her. When Jane came back the following morning, another nurse was there, so she couldn't finish the job. Hmm. Doc- mm-hmm. Dr. Cleland starts watching her. And he realizes that some other patients are dying from convulsions. And he's suspicious. He's like, I don't know if I want to believe that she's doing anything wrong. He's like, maybe she's just misprescribing opiates. And in the summer of 1891, he tells the board of trustees his thoughts and they dismiss her immediately. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. Jean's now 32, jobless, and both of Boston's best nursing schools have fired her. She didn't even have a license to show for the four years of work she'd been doing. The police are like, they think she killed at least 24 people up to this point in her life, but they never were able to prove it. Now, Jane, like so many serial killers before her, has an unending cup of arrogance. And she decides to call on some of the more prominent families in Cambridge who had given her such good reviews before. And they're like, I'm going into private medicine. Do you have any, you know, interest? Now, I need to give some perspective on this. Women in 1888, all women across the U.S. made on average 4 to $6 a week, hardly enough to survive. Jane was going to make $25 a week. Now, comparing that to 2022, we're saying that the average woman in 1888 was only making like 200 to $227 a week. But Jane would have been making seven seventy nine forty, which is a reasonable income. Yeah. For now time. You can live off of seven seventy nine as a single person with no big debts and no children. Right. Unfortunately, this job is rich with ri- richful rife with rich folks. <laughs> taking advantage of nurses and Jane wouldn't always get the money that she had signed, you know, they'd barter. So in the end, her average salary for the year ended up being around six hundred dollars, which is about fourteen K which is 40% of what she was contracting out. It's still way more than the hospital was paying, but crap money. And on top of that, her job was to be with a patient in their own home, anticipate their every need, obey the doctor's directions, do whatever the family needed. She wasn't supposed to bother them in any way. Her shoes shouldn't make a sound. Her newspaper shouldn't even rustle. She was supposed to be constantly happy never showing any signs of fatigue or irritation help with household chores so launder clean um and she'd be allowed to take a daily walk by herself once a day these these gigs were so intense that most nurses would take breaks in between them missing out on money because it was so stressful mm-hmm. but jane liked it um her being a huskier lady Allowed her to really pick people up, you know, do the physical parts of the job. Right. She was very no-nonsense. And her employers liked that. And from 1892 to 1900, she was the most successful private nurse in Cambridge. The most elite families wanted her. Her reputation was spotless, despite these bizarre stories about her upbringing that didn't make any sense. And the rest of the house servants knew she was just a lion sack of crap. <laughs> She was jealous. She had a bad temper. She was vindictive and making trouble across the staff was what she loved. She thought it was so much fun. Just causing fights. 
She had found her calling, though. Holding the dying in her arms. And since most of her patients were elderly, well, you know how we felt. she felt about them. So it's not going to be a surprise that on May 26, 1985, Jane Poison's 83-year-old Israel Dunham. She would later tell the police that he was getting feeble and fussy. The coroner would report that Mr. Dunham died from heart failure brought on by a strangulated hernia. What is weird about this is that Israel and Lovey were her landlords. So most of Jane's jobs required her to board with her patients, but occasionally she'd live on her own. So she set up a relationship with Israel and Lovey where she was pretty much the best tenant ever. She was like never there mm-hmm. and still paying rent. But after killing Israel, Jane stayed there with his widow, just experiencing this grief until the fall of 1897 when she got fed up with Lovey being old and cranky and poisoned her too. And Lovey died September 19th, 1897. Killing the Dunhams really reminded her of how much she hated older people. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Jane's next victim is her closest one yet. Her foster sister, Elizabeth Brigham. So let's roll this back a little bit. Over the years, Jane and her foster sister keep in contact. Jane would even visit Elizabeth and her husband, Ormel. And they were proud of Jenny, as they called her, for making something of herself. And they still thought she was she was funny and charming. And look, she went and got became a nurse. My mom was wrong about you. The issue is, Jane has years of hostility that she has never dealt with. And she's a big chip on her soldier. And she's maintained this grudge partially because of their mother. Um, but also, like, Jane never really got a chance to offload her true feelings on Anne. And so I think some of that hostility transferred to the next available woman in the family, Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. To Jane, though, also, Elizabeth was the living embodiment of privilege. The kind of people she just couldn't stand. Born with a silver spoon in her mouth and giving wealth, social status, a family who love and care for her. Even though Ormel was a chubby deacon at the First Trinitarian Cong- Congressional Church, he very much loved Elizabeth, and Jane had never had that, so she was also resentful of that, too. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Despite being a nurse, Jane hadn't earned any real social capital. Now, for many years, Jane took a vacation to Cape Cod, and in the summer of 1899, she invited her sister. Now, Ormo thought this was a great idea because Elizabeth had been really depressed, something we called melancholia Mm. at the time, and he thought a change of scenery could help. (coughs) Gets there August 25th, and the next day, she and Jane go to the beach. They have a picnic in these white summer dresses. Um, they went back to the cottage and went to bed and the following morning, Elizabeth doesn't come down for breakfast. Jane goes to the landlord and says her sister's sick. She needs a doctor. Then she sends a telegraph to Ormel saying that his wife is ill. Ormel arrives on August 28th to find Elizabeth in a coma and the doctor saying she had a stroke of apoplexy and she died the following morning. As Ormel's gathering his wife's things to go home, he discovers that Elizabeth's bag only has $5 and he had insisted that if she was going on vacation, she'd take at least 50 bucks with her. Mm-hmm. Jane's like, I have no idea. And then she tells him, well, Elizabeth told me just before she died that she wanted me to have her gold watch and her chain as a keepsake. Hmm. Ormel's like, okay, sure, you can have it. Ormel never saw her wear either item. She would tell him later that it was too precious to wear all at work due to her patience. Mm -hmm. But the truth was that she pawned it all. 
Jane planned this murder, and she'd tell the police that it was her chance to get revenge on her sister. Elizabeth was really the first of my victims that I actually hated and poisoned with vindictive purpose, so I let her die slowly with gripping torture. I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped out her life. Her next victim is 70-year-old Mary McNear. Now, Mrs. McNear came to town on Christmas Day, 1899, to visit her daughter, who um, was ill in Cambridge. And she got her sick, uh, herself sick on the trip from Watertown to Cambridge. So they're both sick. The following afternoon, she gets visited by her granddaughter, whose name is Evelyn Shaw. And Evelyn saw her sitting on her parlor, on a sofa, wrapped in a shawl, in front of the fireplace. She's happy, but she's you know got some chills, mm-hmm. sneezing. The following day, she has a cough, and she requests her doctor, uh, Dr. Wesselhoff. Walter Wesselhoff. Walter's like, I hear some congestion, but she'll be fine. Her family's like, she needs a nurse. She's old. And the doctor's like, not really. She just needs to, like, rest. They insist on a nurse, so he sends one of his best, Jane. On December 28th, Evelyn Shaw returns to visit her grandmother and meets Jane. Evelyn's impressed and feels her grandmother is in good hands. She goes home and learns that she'd been called back to Cambridge. Mrs. McNear had passed out and could not be woken. When Evelyn came back to her grandmother's house, Dr. Watcher's there, and he's like, it looks like she suffered a stroke of a pop, a pop, <laughs> Jane's like, she took her medicine, a quiver came over her face, followed by a second, and then she fell back unconscious. Hmm. Really Jane notified, yeah, Jane notified the staff and told them she was going to try and revive Mary. And one of the head cooks was like, yeah, we're going to call a doctor. Mary died the following morning, never coming out of her coma. After she died, her family discovered missing clothes from Mary's closet. And they asked Dr. Walter if it could be Jane. And he was like, absolutely not. So the family dropped it, seeing how it made Dr. Walter pretty upset. And it Mm. truly wasn't that big of a deal, honestly. Now, Mary was a peculiar victim because at this point of Jane's career, she's killing people she knows. Um, And it's kind of weird that she meets Mary and the same day decides to kill her. It's a, a, a one hell of an escalation. I'll say that. Now, January 1st, 1990 comes with absolutely no fanfare. Not like us in 2000 when we thought the whole world was going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, normal end of year celebration. But honestly, the New York Times post, the first post about the new year was that a man in New Jersey had gotten a cricket stuck in his ear and he had been driven mad. Oh, that sounds horrible. <laughs> sounds like... It does sound horrible. But um, Jane, Jane spent in the beginning of the year thinking about her foster sister and taking what she felt like she deserved, which was Jan, Elizabeth's husband. Mm-hmm. She'd been thinking about this for two years now. Almost 60 years old. He's not really appealed to anybody in the area, but Jane's Make sure that if he gets close with someone, he kills them. She kills them. So when she visits Ormel just after the new year, and she learns that one of the housekeepers was getting a little bit too close to him, mm-hmm. she poisons that woman, 45-year-old Florence Calkins. Florence dies on January 15, 1900. Jane would later tell the police, I was jealous of her. I knew she wanted to become Mr. Brigham's wife. 
Now, Jane killed another elderly patient, William Ingram, about two weeks later. We don't know much about William other than the fact that he was 70. Um, this murder would appear to give some sense of normalcy to her normal way she handles things, you know. Jane, however, went right back to killing people she knew. Uh, that is Mrs. Myra Connors. Uh, Myra was one of the few people who we could have called a close friend to Jane, if serial killers can have close relationships at all. Uh, Myra was 40. She was a widow. She worked as the matron of the refectory at St. John's Theological School in Cambridge. Uh, the two didn't really match in terms of their looks. We have Jane, who's, you know, stocky. Uh, she was described many times in books as booksome. Uh, so I guess she was a busty gal too. And Myra's this like super short petite with like the, uh, pince-nez glasses, you know, mm-hmm. we don't know how, yeah, we don't know how they met, but we know that they've been friends for years before Jane decided to kill her. And it was because Jane was jealous. She was envious of the way that she was of Myra, the same way she was envious of Elizabeth. But Jane wanted the job that Myra had. Now, some people believe that she wanted to change careers and not kill anymore and attempt to stop the compulsion. I don't agree with that. Okay. Myra's job duties at this job included overseeing the dining hall. And I think that Jane wanted to poison people. She That's an easier access to. Yeah. Yep. She could just throw it in a little and see how it affected people. On top of that, she would have been paid well, given a nice apartment in Burnham Hall with a private maid and her own mealtime waitstaff. No brainer. Kill this lady, take over her life. Now, the day after Myra gets sick, she calls her doctor, um, Herbery McIntyre, and he thinks she has localized peritonitis. Um, For those who don't know, your peritoneum is the membrane in your stomach. And peritonitis is when it's inflamed. Hmm. So he descri- he prescribes her arrowroot poultices and powdered opium. Jane shows up to help her friend on February 7th, 1900. And the doctor said that Myra had been progressing favorably. But that all stops when Jane shows up. On February 11th, uh, Myra dies convulsing so intensely that one of her arms breaks. Oh my god. Myra, po- Myra was poisoned with strychnine. It was particularly brutal, and for somebody who had done absolutely nothing to Jane, other than just have the job she wanted. <laughs> now, mind you, Myra hasn't even been dead that long, and Jane approaches the dean of the school, mm. Dr. Hodges, and is like, listen, Myra told me she was going on sabbatical, and she had been telling me about what this job entails, and that maybe I could have been her temporary replacement. Mm. And Dr. Hodges is like, I mean, if you know how to do it, come do the job. We got an opening. Right. She's like, I need a couple days. I really need to think about this. I love my patients. She comes back and she's like, listen, um, I've given it some real thought and I'll accept because I just love Myra. Okay. All being crafty. Mm-hmm. Jane's happy. Her plans are falling in line. But here's the problem. Jane's not good at this job. <laughs> Very quickly, she's accused of being incompetent. There's suspicion of her doing things with with the books in terms of ordering food. Um, they they kind of give her a chance. They're like, listen, let her finish out the semester. Um, she takes a job at a mess hall at Woods Hole, which was a biology school. Um, she comes back to the theological school in the fall, having learned nothing. Oh, my God. 
by November, there are so many complaints filed against her that the dean just has to do something. Like, she hadn't paid the kitchen staff for like a month. And they're just like, he's just like, listen, you did your best. I'm going to need you to resign. Jane is devastated. Here's the thing. She's arrogant, like many serial killers are. And she thinks that she's great at everything. Mm-hmm. And and this is like such a, a major blow to her that it, it does make sense for me that Jane's next big thing is that she goes on a, she kills an entire family. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Let escalate it quickly. Oh, that's how it goes. They start with like, you know, one every few years, then every few months, then now every couple weeks. Okay. But for this, we have to go back to Kachumit, which is this beautiful village in Cape Cod where Jane killed her foster sister. Now, Jane had stayed at this college owned by Alden Davis, a pretty wealthy man who had a really great like reputation in the community. And she had stayed there for the last five years at this point. And even though Alden was in his late 60s and ready to retire, he allowed Jane to come rent from him because she had always been his favorite tenant. On top of being very pleasant and kind to his family, when they needed medical help, she was happy to give it. Even while she was on vacation uh, to the Davises and the neighbors, she'd even babysit their kids if someone needed to take a trip to town for the day. And if someone in the Alden family got sick, he would just deduct money from her rent. Um, But ultimately, Jane was never really able to pay the full amount. But they liked her so much, they would let her just kind of pay it off over time. But by the end of the fifth summer in Cape Cod, Jane owed the Davis family $500. Hmm. While Alden didn't seem to care a whole lot, his wife Maddie absolutely cared. And she was over this. So that year, so we're talking, it's 1900. Or was it 1901 now? Yes. June 1st. Maddie's daughter, Genevieve, is like, I'm going to be stopping in Boston to visit my in-laws before I come back home for the summer. And Maddie's like, let's make a day of this. I'll come have lunch with you. But what Maddie's plan is, I'm going to stop by Cambridge to talk to Jane and tell her she's not welcome back at the Davis estate until she pays her whole bill. And then I'll go to Boston and have lunch with the in-laws. So she tells her husband his plan and he's not really mad at her or anything. He's just like, listen, you're 62. We're we're not in the best health. Like, do you really want to take this trip? And Maddie's like, listen, it's now or never. You're too nice. So Maddie takes the, the trip on June 25th. The summer of 1901 was one of the hottest on the East Coast. We've talked about this before in other older timey killings, mm-hmm. but they called it the hot wave. And uh, in the in the course of four days, the first four days of July, over 400 people died. So Maddie was like, I'm just going to do this. She almost doesn't go because she gets herself ready and she realizes she's about to miss the 645 train to Cambridge. So Alden actually heads over there and uh, stops the conductor to tell him his wife's her, his wife's coming. Maddie rushed into the train, which is only 300 feet away from the front door of their house, trips, falls down a hill. Her husband helps her and they kind of get her onto the train and get her situated. The men who are watching are pretty surprised that Alden let her go, but she was very determined. Um, I feel like it was almost like the world was trying to keep her from going to Jane's house. Right. It was and Maddie to just you. wasn't having it. Yeah. The world's trying to give you a sign and you're not listening. Right, Like your husband tried to stop you. And then uh, you almost missed the train. And then you almost hurt yourself falling down the train. Mm-mm. 
Just don't do it. But she did it. Yes. Now, on the train, Maddie's talking to one of her neighbors about where she's going. And the neighbor's like, oh, my God, I can't believe Jolly Jenny was taking advantage of you like that. And the neighbor's like, listen, if it's me, I wouldn't leave it all without all my money. Mm-hmm. Now, after killing her other landlords, Jane had been boarding at another house owned by an ex-city council member named Melvin Beadle and uh, his wife, Eliza. Now, Jane had poisoned Melvin and Eliza, too, but not enough to kill him, just to give him some stomach cramps. She'd also drugged their housekeeper, Mary Sullivan, to get her fired and then told Eliza that she caught Mary drinking and Eliza found Mary passed out on her bed. Of course, they fire her, put her in a carriage and uh, send her away. And Jane takes over that lady's duties. So it's the 25th and Maddie arrives and Jane had just made dinner for herself and the Beatles. But Jane kind of knows the score already. So she goes and she grabs some mineral water that she loves to give to people and offers it to Maddie. And she's like, you know, we can deal with this after dinner. They all eat together and Maddie drinks that entire glass, which is made of Hanyadi mineral water and morphia. Mm. After dinner, Jane's like, okay, we can go to the bank and take out the money. And um, Maddie agrees. But when she stands up, she gets dizzy. And Jane's like, well, maybe it was that fall you took. And Maddie had told them about the fall that morning. But she's like, I'm fine. And as soon as they get outside of the house, she falls. Like, she just collapses. It was how hot it was. No one's blanking at the idea of an elderly woman falling down. Right. So Jane picks her up and brings her back into the house. Jane and Melvin carry her upstairs into an empty room. They're like, maybe it's just, you know, heat exhaustion, some fatigue. Melvin gets her some cold water, and Jane gives her another dose of morphia to quiet her. Now, Jane sends a message to Alden saying that Maddie is sick. She sends a telegraph to Genevieve, her daughter in Somerville, who'd been waiting for her mom. Genevieve arrives the next day and insists on a doctor. It takes a while to find one who wasn't busy or had left the heat, you know, left through the heat. Mm -hmm. That guy who shows up is Dr. John T.G. Nichols. And um, Nichols is a pretty famous doctor because he had been involved in the case of Sarah Jane Robinson, who was a serial poisoner who had poisoned people with rat poison. And Dr. Nichols is one of the doctors who misdiagnosed Prince Arthur Freeman uh, as a disease of the stomach instead of arsenic poisoning. Mrs. Robinson went on to kill several more people. That experience made him aware, and he had spent a decade repairing his reputation, but he was about to also not get this one because Jane didn't use arsenic, and so he didn't see the signs. And she tells Dr. Nichols that Mrs. Davis is a diabetic who had eaten all this cake at dinner and collapsed afterward. And when Dr. Nichols checked it, it appeared that she was suffering from a diabetic coma. They even tested her urine and the sugar content was super high. Of course, Jane collected it before the doctor got there. Of course. He didn't have any reason to doubt that it had been doctored. For the next seven days, Jane plays with Maddie's life. And she does it under the nose of her landlords. Maddie's own, like, and the doctors and the daughter. Jane gave her different doses of atropine and morphine and other drugs to test the results and really kind of confuse people. At one point, she gave Maddie a dose strong enough to wake her up and then dosed her again to make her go back into the coma. What the hell? 
Oh, yeah. No, Jane's getting high on the power trip of this lady who she felt like showed up, waved her wealth in Jane's face. And she finally lets Maddie die on July 4th. And she goes back for the funeral the following day. Jane would later tell the police that was when she decided to kill the rest of the family. And she says she was sitting there just watching the people leave the funeral going, you better wait a little while. I'll have another funeral for you. If you wait, it'll save you from going back and forth. Oh my God. After Maddie's funeral, Jane is like, okay, well, I'm going to head back home. Um, Sorry for your loss. And Genevieve and her sister Minnie are like, no, 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 stay. And she's like, listen, I don't have the money this year, which is why I didn't come up earlier. And the sisters are like, listen, we want you to stay. Look after our dad. We'll cover it. Um, no. He's sick with grief. And so Jane moves into the main house with the family. Oh, my God. No. Which is when she starts setting fires. What? So she's not content with just, you know, murdering no. people. It's- yep. She sets the first one and within the first week she's there. Um, she puts a bunch of paper in the closet and then goes back to her room. She was intending on killing Alden, but he had been struggling with insomnia and he smelled the smoke, yelled for people, and Jane caped and helped him put it out. She tries again a couple days later, setting fire to the pantry and then going and talking to the neighbors down the street. The neighbors notice the fire and then they all run and put it out. A week later, she tries it again and she tells Alden that she'd seen a stranger lurking outside the house. The village is in a tizzy. There's a firebug on the loose. The neighbors are just like, wow, the Davises are just having the worst luck right now. I wonder why. The next to die is Genevieve. Uh, Losing your mom is hard, but Genevieve definitely blamed herself. um, Because Maddie had wanted to, to, you know, demanded to meet her in Boston. And I'm sure she said to herself, you know, if she had just stayed home, she would have lived. Genevieve was so sad that Jane decided she'd be better off dead than depressed. And she started by planting seeds of worry in her older sister Minnie's head. She's like, I saw her walking around the grounds and she picked up this box and she looked at it. And when I went and looked at the box, it was Paris green, which if people don't know, that's an insecticide. That's real. Not good. Um, Jane told Minnie she was worried that Genevieve was going to kill herself. And it made sense. I mean, Alden was struggling her, her dad. Mm-hmm. He was always eccentric and he was having more weird outbursts and that had to be affecting her too. So on July 26th after dinner, Genevieve got violently ill and vomited until her throat was raw. Then that nausea lasted through the night. Uh, Jane tended to her, gave her water and then the middle of the night went to finish the job. In the morning, Jane informed the family that Genevieve had died. A local doctor said it looked like heart disease and Jane's, uh, husband showed up and she told the husband that she had found one of her syringes stolen and that it had Paris green in it but she didn't want Alden or Minnie to know they agreed to keep it a secret and she disposed of the syringe in an outhouse like in the hole Mm -hmm. Jane told the police later I went to the funeral and felt as jolly as could be and nobody suspected me in the least disgusting (laughs) well jane decides to put alden out of his misery next on august 8th alden makes a day trip to boston um because he's going to file a complaint with the people who made the coffin for genevieve because he felt like he had been overcharged Mm. um he comes back he's home sweaty tired jane fusses over him um comes back with a glass of water you know her special water Mm -hmm. 
He drank the entire thing, and the following morning, he didn't come down for breakfast. Alden's granddaughter went to check on him and came downstairs really upset. She's like, Grandpa didn't wake up. So, of course, Jane, Minnie, and Harry all leap up and run upstairs. Alden is cold and gray. They call a doctor. The doctor's like, it looks like his heart gave out. It must have been the combination of the loss, these fires, traveling. It's just too much for a 64-year-old man. Whatever drink he drank, you know. (laughs) Jane was like, I mean, what about the cost of the funerals? And that could have been adding to his stress, too. And having to go up to Boston to argue with that guy. Jane is in the midst of a full murder spree. She's out of control. And the speed of the deaths are increasing. Because Minnie is killed five days after her father. Now for Alden's funeral, uh, a bunch of other family came up to support Minnie. And Minnie's cousin is like, listen, how about we all leave this house, which is dark and depressing. We'll go to Woods Hole. We'll have a good day. So Jane's like, listen, here, Minnie, take some cocoa wine for the drive up uh, to, you know, kind of steal your nerves. Of course, there's morphia in it. And by the time they get back that afternoon, Minnie is exhausted. And she can't even get up the steps to her room since she just hangs out in the, the parlor. Jane gives her some water and insists she needs it because of the heat. The water has both morphia and at- atropine in it. Minnie goes to sleep and slips into a coma. In a really disgusting kind of moment, instead of hopping into bed with Minnie like she was used to, mm-hmm. Jane goes and wakes up Minnie's 10-year-old son and makes him lay in bed with her Bruh. as she comforts him while his mother is literally dying beneath them. Can, no. Minnie's cousin wakes up and sees Minnie downstairs. Then she wakes up Harry and they look at this very limp, barely breathing Minnie. The doctors say she's all tired out from the previous day's activities. And he's like, oh, give her some wine as a stimulant. But she can't drink it because she's so knocked out. Mm -hmm. So Jane makes a whiskey enema with whiskey and water and more morphia in it. And the doctor comes back four hours later and she's worse. He's like trying to wake her up himself. Then he calls another doctor. Then he calls Minnie's father-in-law. Um, as her f- husband was away in sea, they try all these different concoctions, but 4.10 p.m. August 14th, Minnie Gibbs dies at 39 years old. They're like, it was exhaustion. August 19th, the local paper reads, four members of a Cape family die in a period of six weeks. Six weeks. Brittany, yeah. that's only a freaking like month. I haven't even lived in this new place six weeks yet. What the hell? Damn. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 a lot. And the only person um who suspects Jane is Captain Paul Gibbs, Minnie's father in law. Mm-hmm. And he at first he doesn't want to think this way. Think it think that way. He he was like he had seen Jane give Minnie this injection and he's like asked her about it and she's like, Oh, I'm doing what the doctor said. And he's just like, I don't know. He's like, I'm not sure what to tell. She's respected in Cape Cod and Cambridge. Minnie's husband docks and um, he ends up giving Jane a gold pen piece as a thank you for caring for his wife in her last hours. Mm. 
um, Jane to stay in town with this deluded idea that Captain Gibbs is going to meet her and like fall in love with her. Oh, right. But he's heartbroken, and he has a 10-year-old son he has to care for now. So he leaves immediately, and Jane leaves too. <sighs> well, so Jane leaves too. Jane kind of remembers, I guess, that Ormol li- is still alive, and she's like, well, he's my potential future husband. My mind. Yes. Uh, yeah, and so she's pretty sure she'll have him all to herself when she shows up at the end of August in 1901. But when she arrives, there's a 70-year-old widow there named Edna, Edna Bannister sitting in the parlor. And Edna had wanted to take a trip across America because of her heart. She hadn't gotten very far. And she's like, eh, never mind. I'll go visit my brother. So Jane walks in. She's polite. And they kind of spend that weekend hanging out together. They have lunch. That following Monday, August 26th, Edna gets dizzy. She went to lie down, and despite saying she felt better, Jane insisted on giving her some mineral water. <laughs> that night, Edna slips into a coma. Dr. Williams Bass, the same doctor who had assisted with Florence's murder the year before, showed up and tries his best to revive her. Uh, Edna dies on August 27, 1901. The last of the murders. Now, while Jane is killing Ormel back in Cape Cod, people are talking. A doctor by the name of Ira Cushing had seen Alden the day he went to Boston to lodge that complaint. And he was like, Alden seemed perfectly fine. And so was Minnie. And Ira was like, I need to talk to somebody. So Ira goes to a mutual friend of Captain Gibbs named Ed Robison. He's like, listen, this is weird. And I know you're Captain Gibbs friend. And it's my professional opinion that we should look into this. And so Ed is like, bet, and goes to Captain Gibbs. And Captain Gibbs is like, finally, somebody else thinks this too? <laughs> So then he goes and contacts a man named Leonard Wood. Leonard Wood was a Harvard Medical School trained doctor who had been an assistant surgeon in the army, who served alongside future president Teddy Roosevelt. T.R., as he called him, spoke exceptionally highly of him. Now, Leonard was still in the military, but he was actually home this summer for a small reprieve before he was set to go back to Cuba. And when Leonard heard about all these strange things, like Minnie waking up from her coma and looking scared at Jane and the strange syringe of liquid, he contacts a former teacher from Harvard, Dr. Edward Wood. No relation. And Dr. Wood is a specialist in medical chemistry and toxicology. Fifteen years prior, Dr. Wood had been called to help with the arrest of the American bourgeois poisoner, Sarah James Jane Robinson. He had been the one to determine that her son had been given arsenic. Ooh, so I'm hey. like, this is so weirdly twisted up with this prior case. Yeah. So when Dr. Wood comes in and the police take notice, they open an investigation. The detective on the case was Josephus Whitney and the district attorney Lemuel Holmes ordered that Minnie and Genevieve's body be exhumed. Jane is none the wiser until the Boston Globe publishes a piece on August 31st. Inquiry is underway. Investigation of deaths of Cotomet uh, family A.P. Davis, wife and daughters die suddenly. This article came out the same day that Dr. Robert Fonts, the medical examiner, Dr. Wood, Dr. Leonard, Ladder, the Davis's doctor, and Reverend Mr. Dicking of the local church. I guess he was called because to maintain the, the you know, I guess to not desecrate the body. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the time it was just called a dissection, which is a little weird, but... Yeah, they removed several of the women's internal organs, took them to Professor Wood's laboratory in Cambridge, and then the bodies were reinterred. 
um, it all went silent for a few weeks. At first, it was because they were waiting for results. And then President McKinley was assassinated on September 14th, and the press devoted all available time to that. His life, legacy, assassination. Um, that didn't mean the investigation stopped, though. See, when that first article came out, a detective named John S. Patterson was put on detail to watch her. And so he followed her from Cape Cod to a visit with Harry Gordon Sr. to a trip to Lowell where Ormel's sister died. And he, as he's watching her, Jane is becoming more and more erratic. After killing his sister, Jane sort of moved in with him and is like, I'm going to take care of the house. I'm going to show Ormel how good of a wife I am. And Ormel is just like, thank you for the help, but I don't want you as a wife, housekeeper or a wife. Mm-hmm. So she poisoned his tea with morphia just enough to make him sick so she can nurse him back to health. And she's like, now he'll see I'm a great wife. He doesn't care. He's like, okay, it's time for you to go. Thanks for your help. <laughs> so Jane feels rejected and betrayed. She's like, I'm doing so much for this man. So she threatens him saying, I'm going to tell your friends that I'm pregnant and you're the father. <sighs> Almost like enough leave. And so on that same day, September 29th, she overdoses on morphine. He finds her passed out, calls a doctor. The doctor gives her an emetic, which causes her to vomit. They get her a nurse and Jane convinces the nurse. We're going to need to pause. The dog is like spazzing out. All right. One second. I'm just going to hit that stop button. Yep. Stop. Thank you. Record. So they give Jane a nurse, like her own nurse. And she convinces that lady to that she feels good again. And so the nurse is like, oh, I'm going to go downstairs and make you breakfast. As soon as the nurse goes to get her breakfast, Jane tries to kill herself again. And they try and force an emetic in her mouth. Um, The doctor shows up. And when he sees that she's not swallowing, he just gives her an injection of something called apomorphine. And she vomits immediately. Um, Mm. When asked why she tried to kill herself, she tells the doctor, I'm tired of life. I know people are talking about me. I just want to die. I don't think she gave herself a lethal dose. I think she's still trying to get sympathy from normal. As soon as she's healthy, he's like, all right, time to go now. (laughs) So the detective follows her as she goes up to Amherst, New Hampshire to visit her friends. And she has this like whole week. It's like a a whole couple weeks of fun trip. She talks about it in her writing. Oh, it was such a good time. There were so many people until October 29th when the detective and two other police officers show up to get her. And her friends are very confused. And Jane's like, okay, I'll come with you. But she later tells the police that she absolutely was going to kill both George and Sarah Nichols just for the hell of it. Oh my God. The second she's arrested, Jane is big news. And there are all these articles across the Northeast about her. They're like the most extraordinary killer in the annals of human crime. And Jane's like, I'm innocent. I have no idea what you're talking about. So they take her. She has her arraignment on the 31st. And they're like, what do you plead? She's like, not guilty. She tells the press the same thing. They're like, oh, she's so nice and sweet and stoic. Anybody and everyone who is connected to Jane in some way, they chase down. From landlords to clients to church people who knew her when she was a child. The, the press deduced that, like, she must be like a morphine addict because she seems so nice. Like what could have possibly caused her to do this? Mm-hmm. The Damas family doctor who had actually missed the clues died 10 days before Jane was arrested. 
And so Jane's like, listen, I'll explain everything that I did for the family. Like, you know, Dr. Ladder would have been able to tell you more, but the police are sure she was just like women of the past who used arsenic. And they try to find a record of her buying any, but there isn't because that's not what she did. See, Professor Wood was an expert on arsenic poisoning. He had cre- he made an assumption that ended up being correct, but with the wrong method. Captain Gibbs told the press how she came on to him after his wife died. Um, and then the reporters turned on her saying that she was she had killed her friend for money and marriage. Um, the presumptions really went on as the state uh, tried to build a case against her and she remained quiet. And then the state decided to send a couple doctors in to talk to Jane on March 20th, 1902. Dr. George F. Jelly and Jella and Hosea M. Quinby came to Barnstable Jail to speak to her. Jane is immediately suspicious, but she does launch into her bizarre life story and she maintains her innocence and her personality. But the doctors are like, she's a pathological liar. And she denies murder. And finally, she's like, yeah, I killed like 12 people. And I like setting fires. And she begins detailing this. And they just let her talk. It's all measured. No grief. No sorrow. She told her poisoning was a habit of her life. And they begin looking into her real life. And so this is what uh, the doctors come to a consensus about Jane's mental state. So they say, one, the prisoner Jane Toppin comes of a family in which intemperance and mental weakness are disorders are prominent in her family. Two, her utter lack of moral sense has been evident from childhood and her incorrigible proclivity to falsehood, dishonesty, mischief-making, general unreliability, and probable theft. The good moral, mental, and religious training which she received in her youth resulted in no modification of her character and were practically thrown away on her in that respect. Three, her moral insensibility is further apparent in the absence of sense of fear before, during, or after the commission of her crime and of her poor sorrow or genuine affection at any time. This defect is even more forcibly shown by the fact that her chief victims were her friends. Four, her lack of any appreciation of her situation, her levity under such circumstances, and her inability to realize the enormity of these deeds are strong evidence of mental weaknesses. Five, that irresistible propensity propelled her to crimes of arson and murder is shown by the great frequency and variety of such acts um, and her continuum continuance in them regardless of consequences i'm sorry they wrote very right old timey y'all <laughs> six there's an absence of any apparent motive for her crimes in some cases and inadequacy of motives in any others this is shown in total lack of evidence of pecuniary gain or satisfaction in revenge as a rule um except for minor thefts or transient enmity so essentially like she would like steal to get back at people but they're like, the, the murder's not making sense here. They're like, uh, a sane criminal has incentive to kill people. Um, the prisoner, and then seven, the prisoner's disease history and present mental state correspond with well-recognized forms of mental disease of moral type due to congenital degeneration, of which there may be little or no intellectual disturbance. So essentially, they think there's something wrong with her brain, but it's not like she's losing her faculties. Mm -hmm. The doctors are like, we're good. She's insane. And the New York Journal prints a confession to Jane's lawyer where she said she was sane, that she killed 31 people, and she wanted to be seen as sane in court so that she might get out of prison one day. 
Uh, well, here's the thing. At Jane's trial, she still insists she's sane, saying she knew she was doing wrong and she's aware of it. She told the police that she gained sexual satisfaction from killing and how she stroked them and kissed on them. Did not matter. <laughs> they were hell-bent on saying that she was insane. So the trial begins June 23rd, 1902. Jane's court-appointed attorney does exactly what he plans to do. Prove not guilty by insanity. This trial did not even last one day. They read her confession. Members of the Davis family corroborated her statement. And at 5.12 p.m., they found her not guilty by reason of insanity. And a judge sentenced her to natural life in the Taunton Insane Hospital. Oh, my God. Only person in the room who smiled was Jane. She left the courtroom happy. (laughs) Seems like a done deal. But then Jane tells her lawyers, well, this isn't the only killing I've ever done. And he's like, what? And she's like, well, I've been poisoning people ever since I was a nursing student. She's like, I'm sure I killed a lot more than 31 people, but like, I don't know. Like, what? And so there was this doctor who was preparing like a psychological evaluation of her for a journal. And he like Uh the lawyer's like, he tells that guy and he's like, what do do we do about this? And the doctor's like, I'm going to go to the hospitals to learn more about her. On June 24th, the Boston Globe labels Jane the greatest criminal in history. The Boston Travelers called her the most horrible case of degeneracy the world has ever known. They do believe that Jane will, may have killed in excess of 100 plus people, but we'll never really know for sure. And she did go mm-hmm. down in history as being one of the more prolific poisoners of her day and ours. Uh, Jane gave a, full, a more chilling confession to the press, and I'm going to read parts of it for you. So okay. she says, I was advised to confess and plead guilty to the murder of 31 persons who am I sent out of this world by poisoning. But I thought of a better way than that. When the famous insanity experts of Boston, Dr. Henry Stedman, Dr. George F. Jelly, and Dr. Hosea Quimby came to the Barnstable Jail to see if I was insane, I knew how to fool them. I have been a trained nurse for 15 years, and I know doctors and just how to manage them. I know that people who are really insane will always deny it. So I said to the alienists, I am not insane. I knew I could fool them if I wanted to, and make myself out insane. Dr. Jelly and the others raked me with hard questions. They tried to play on my women's sympathy and asked me if I didn't think it was a terrible thing to take those mothers, Mrs. Gibbs and Mrs. Gordon, away from their young children. But I knew that game, and I said I just up and killed them, and I don't know why. When I said that I killed four people in 51 days and set three fires, they said, Why, Jane? You must have been insane to have said such a thing. But I insisted I was not insane, and I did not want them to make me out insane. Then they went away and gave their verdict that I was insane, which is exactly what I wanted. I was too smart for the whole of them. I have the most spunk and grit of any person living. But I haven't told exactly how I poisoned these people. It was with morphia mostly and sometimes atropia. Morphia and atropia weaken the heart's conditions and leave very little trace behind for a doctor or chemist to detect. They are vegetable poisons and unlike arsenic and other mineral poisons, which are easily detectable. My using morphia and atropia on mini Gibbs was what so puzzled Professor Wood, the famous chemist of Harvard University. He could find some traces of morphia in the parts of the body he was examining, but there were some complications he was utterly at a loss to explain. It was not until I confessed that I used atropia that Professor Wood was able to apply the test to make sure of his analysis. If my poison so could so fool a great physician and chemist like Dr. Wood, you can see how much easier it was to deceive general practitioners. This is how it happens that physicians have given certificates for heart disease, diabetes, fatty degeneration of the heart, 
prostration, anemia, in the cases of all the people I've killed. Almost any person in middle life when dosed with hunyadi, hunyadi water and drugged with morphia and atropia will show a symptom of those diseases. Soon after I became a nurse 15 years ago, when I was about 30 years old, it came into my head, I don't know how, that I could kill people just as easy as not with very medicine that the doctors give their patients. After I tried it in a few cases and it worked well and they didn't suspect me, I thought how easily I could put people out of the way that I wanted to. My first victims were hospital patients. I experimented on them with what the doctors call a scientific interest. I can't repeat the names of those cases because I never knew them. They just went by numbers in the hospital ward anyway. That was when I was at Cambridge Hospital. Perhaps it was a dozen people I experimented on in this way. But you mustn't think I killed all the patients under my care in the hospital. I nursed back to health several bad cases of typhoid fever. One of the physicians at the hospital suspected me, but he dared not accuse me of poisoning. So I was simply discharged. I didn't care about that because I must made up my mind that I could make more money and have an easier time going out by the day in the families. People say I have no heart, but I do. When I've been in jail, a friend in Lowell sent me some forget-me-nots and I cried. They were the flowers that my first lover used to send me when I was a schoolgirl. And a forget-me-not was engraved on that precious engagement ring. I thought it was a bird, but whatever. <laughs> I will never tell my girlhood lover's name that it was still sacred to me, even though he went back on me. And it seemed that my whole lighthearted nature changed after that. I still laughed and was jolly, but I learned how to hate too. If I had been a married woman, I probably would have not killed all these people. I would have had a husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. Like all psychopaths, though, uh, Jane was only capable of really feeling sorry for herself. And pretty much at the end of this confession, she says, um, I could have worked for years longer at poisoning if I hadn't killed four people in one family almost all at once. That was the greatest mistake of my life. <laughs> and then she says that she deserves to be punished for all these murders. And um, she says, I've made up my mind to being sent to an insane asylum, but I have hopes of getting out in 10 or 15 years when my doctors say that I am cured of insanity. Well, Jay never got what she wanted. Um, she not. was never released and she died in prison, a uh, correction, a facility 34 years later. She got sick on July 1st, 1938. She was stuck bedridden for a month. She died on August 17th at 18 at 81 years old from bronchopneumonia with chronic myocarditis as a contributing factor. So she had pneumonia and also heart issues. She spent all her time in prison reading romance novels, writing her own strange books, and making jokes with the other nurses about killing patients with morphine. Oh my god. This is such a funny topic. Oh my god. I'm sure they loved it. She would literally like be like, if somebody was like a pain, She'd be like, yeah, let's get that morphine and take care of them. Oh and the no. nurses are like, that's why you're here, weirdo. <laughs> like, no, Jane. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the very curious case. I had to pull the confession because they never confess. They're never honest. Mm -hmm. And or here they make she it is. Sound like it's, yeah, they make it sound like, oh, woe is me, blah, blah, blah. This is, this is what caused me to come down this path of heartache and pain right you kill all these people nope she was just straight up like yeah y'all suck and i'm smart and uh, i've just been killing folks for 15 years <laughs> party hard my god she's a guy at least killed like 12 at each of these hospitals but i don't know they were all numbers weird story weird lady yeah absolutely i'll agree with that <laughs> 
Jane was a weird one. But yeah, that's all I got for you today. A little okay. more lighthearted than, you know, talking about rape all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I did enjoy this. <laughs> I mean, it shouldn't have, but, you know, I, uh, I, just did, I didn't hate it, at least. Not as much. Okay. Well, what are you so, talking to me about? Today is the first day of October. Woo! The first day of the spooky month. So, I am going to... Well, I'm going to tell you a tale. Um, I wanted to do something a little different today. Uh, I got you a tale, and then I got you a cryptid. So, okay. boom, boom. The tale, it, it's short. Um, it, that's why I added a cryptid on, because I was like, eh, that's not going to be long enough. <laughs> okay, well, we'll see. <laughs> All right. So, for the beginning of our favorite, favorite month, um... I will be telling y'all the legend of the jack-o'-lantern. Oh! How it, how it became a thing. Nifty. Yeah. <laughs> it's how it, I can hear the excitement in your voice. No, it's one of the things I, it's one of those things that like would come up with like the kindergartners at school. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'd be like, I don't know. Oh. So now well, I might have an answer if the children ask me how jack-o'-lanterns were created. I might have to modify it so it's not scary, but it's yeah, just um okay. So basically, this tale comes from Irish folklore. That's basically where the the legend of the jack o' lantern comes from. Irish folklore, um, and the Irish immigrants would bring you know they brought the story over to America. So okay, I uh, at first they started using uh turnips and potatoes i did hear about that. that yes yes how and then, are those too tiny uh, they did it they found a way <laughs> um and then once they bec- once they came to america you know got pumpkins now so they're like oh let's just carve these things up instead they're a lot bigger <laughs> uh okay so this is a tale um and it's called the legend of stinging jack Mm. So, people have been making jack-o'-lanterns at Halloween for centuries. The practice originated from an Irish myth about a man named Stinging Jack. According to the story, Stinging Jack invited the devil to have a drink with him. True to his name, Stinging Jack didn't want to pay for his drink, so he convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin that Jack could use to buy their drinks. Once the devil did so, Jack decided to keep the money and put it in his pocket next to a silver cross, which prevented the devil from changing back to his original form. Um, Jack eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack for one year, and that Jack, should Jack die, he would not claim his soul. So, the next year, Jack again tricked the devil into climbing into a tree to pick a piece of fruit. While he was up in a tree, Jack carved a sign of the cross onto the tree's bark so that the devil could not come down until the devil promised Jack not to bother him for ten more years. Soon after, Jack died. As the legend goes, God would not allow such an unsavory figure in heaven. The devil 
upset by the trick Jack had played on him. <laughs> and keeping his word not to claim his soul would not allow Jack into hell. Okay. He sent Jack off into the night into the dark night with only a burning coal to light his way. Jack put the coal into a carved out turnip and has been roaming the earth ever since. Um the Irish began to refer to this ghostly figure as Jack of the Lantern. And then <laughs> right? And then, <laughs> and then they shorten it to Jack O' Lantern. Um, so in Ireland and Scotland, people began to make their own versions of Jack's lanterns by carving scary faces into turnips and potatoes um, and placing them into windows or near doors to frighten away stinking Jack and other wandering evil spirits. Uh, in England, Large beats were used. Um, immigrants from both countries brought the Jack and Lantern tradition with them when they came to the United States. Um, they soon found that pumpkins, a fruit native to America, that's right, pumpkins are a fruit, um, native to America, they made perfect Jack o' lanterns. Um, Much bigger. So that's. Yeah, absolutely. My whole thing is, like, all these tales about. People tricking the devil. I'm like, is the devil really that dumb to be tricked to turn it into a coin or to like climb a tree so you can get a fruit? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, I don't, I don't think so. Oh, um, <laughs> but yeah, that's the. Okay. No, prob- I, like I say, probably not. So that's the. That's the legend of the jack o' lantern for our very first day of October. So when you see. Jack and Lanterns out. When you carve your pumpkins this year, just think of singing Jack and tricking the devil into paying for your drinks. I'd probably trick the devil into paying for my drinks. I'd actually want to do that um, now. Oh. Yeah, could be good. <laughs> okay, so the cryptid I have for today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found this list. Of cryptids for October to to talk about. Um, So I'm going to start with the first one that's on the list, which is, uh, you've probably heard of it before, uh, the skunk ape. And I have not talked about it. No, I don't know anything about a skunk ape. You don't know anything about the skunk ape? Oh, Brittany. Sounds (laughs) terrible. It's horrible. Well, as the name implies, the skunk ape, smells really really terrible the skunk ape is basically bigfoot okay okay um uh, i'm just gonna say that it's bigfoot but not really um don't tell people in florida that because they're gonna be like no we have the skunk ape so the skunk ape of course it's a florida thing (laughs) let me i'll get to that um so the skunk ape actually the skunk ape really actually appears in like all the southern eastern uh, states. Um, so you got Texas, Georgia, Louisiana, but Florida. Ooh, Florida. <laughs> they love their skunk ape. Um, so it has black fur, glowing red eyes. Um, it's like it's it's considered bigfoot but it looks a lot like an ape okay um and like like i said based off his name it smells this is a hairy man on that yeah 
<laughs> it smells smells so terrible. Um, there, of course, have been sightings of said skunk ape. Um, the first two were in the 60s and the 70s. Um, there's one from the 70s. Um, I guess two Palm Beach County Sheriff deputies um marvin and ernie i love the names um they said that you know they reported that he saw an ape-like creature that stalked that stalked them through the grove before they shot at it of course like why would you why would you not shoot at you know something that's just you know minding its own business it i mean it's probably stalking you Exactly. Like it's like this is the seventies. Like there are costumes out. It could have been just a man in gorilla suit, and he's just trying to trick y'all and play a joke. But y'all want to try to shoot at him? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> we ain't talking about that right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they shoot at him, and they follow the trail of I guess the footprints that were that are left off that were left behind by this this thing um and they f- they found a piece of its fur that had been like stuck on some barbed wire mm-hmm. yeah um so that was like the end of that report uh so in the like this is all in the 70s uh so after this initial sighting there for like four years there were like like this this thing there's this thing I don't know, it looks like a big hairy ape out here just stalking us. What the hell? And this is happening around uh, Broward County, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people have said this is like, he's he's like five to seven foot tall, um, ape-like creature. He has dark hair, he has black hair, he has red eyes, and he's just like in the woods just creeping at us. Like, what's going on? Um... So all the newspapers in Florida, they're covering this. Really? This, yeah, they're they're like you got local news, newspapers, whatever, just going off on this. People are like seeing this thing that they've now dubbed the skunk ape because <laughs> a stinky boy. <laughs> because he's a smelly guy. Because like all that fur, of course, he's going to smell really, really bad. Um. He's a mold man, but, but apparently they call him Skunk Ape too because he's he has black fur and he has that little white patch going on there. Mm-hmm. So he looks like a skunk too, but he smells like a skunk. Um, but yeah, apparently this thing has been like in like breaking into houses. Oh, it's been stalking like right <laughs> stalking people. Yeah, that's different. Uh, yeah. Um. It, somebody, one of the, I guess, a local police officer said that he hit a, the skunk ape with his car because it was just like running out in the street, I guess, and then it just left a very, very big Schmier. dent in his. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, um, skunk ape. Uh, you, if you ever go down to Florida or Texas, um, just the Everglades, I guess. Like, they're big wooded areas. That's where you'll find a skunk ape. 
Um, there have been a lot of pictures taken. Nice. Uh, said, said sir. Um, from a distance, of course. But in the year of 2000, um, there was a video taken, taken okay. by, by a guy. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Dave Shealy. Okay. And this man is like the self-proclaimed skunk ape expert. <laughs> and this okay so this happens like i guess a couple of days before christmas um was this no 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 that's a different story that's a different story I'm gonna say <laughs> that I'm... happens sorry my notes were all over the damn place but okay so this does happen in the year 2000 but um Okay, so this guy, Dave Shealy, um, so he actually said that the first time he saw the skunk ape was when he was 10 years old. Yeah, it was like, I guess, his dad had found some footprints that were left by the skunk ape, Um, and he was like, oh. Well then, um, he's like, it was walking across the swamp, and my brother spotted it first, but I couldn't see it over the grass. I wasn't tall enough, of course. You know what your first problem was? Living in a swamp. Yes. That's the first problem. Uh, but I guess his brother picked him up, and he saw he saw it like a hundred hundred yards away. We were. He was like, we were just kids, but we'd heard about it. And knew for sure what we were looking at. It looked like a man, but completely covered with hair. Um. So you know his brother, him and his brother, are out here. They're they're like in awe of this big old Bigfoot type of thing. <laughs> um. Um. After they 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 spot it, it starts raining, and then the skunk ape runs away, and then he's like. Holy crap. I, like, I finally saw this thing after hearing about it for so many years growing up. The skunk ape. Um, the skunk ape. And it's, it's, it's such a stupid name. I'm so sorry, Brian. It's fine. It's not, I didn't make the name up. I don't care. But in the, in the year 2000, in July, not December, July, there's another story about December. Um... I may not tell that one. <laughs> Who cares about that? Um, but this is the one I want to talk about. In in July 2000, Dave Shealy captures video of the yeah, skunk game. what I want. Walking across the, I guess the Everglades, whatever, the swampy area that's in Florida. Um, let me see. Let me share this to you. I sent it into the chat. I should have just already had it saved and ready to go, but you know. <sighs> Come on. Um, but yeah, in this video, you will see a humanoid ape like creature walking. Just, you know, it, it, at first, he's doing some type of like 
stride and stuff. And then he's just like chilling, walking and stuff like that. Um, it's I'm sending, I'm sending. <laughs> Boom. Check it out. No problem, but you you can see it. It it looks like what do you call? It? I don't know. What would you say? It, it looks like a just like one of those Bigfoot trail camera photo like videos. You know what I mean? He's just out there chilling, and somehow this guy Dave he just happens to capture. This thing that's a skunk ape. Well, walking, mm. and yeah, and I will leave that up to your imagination if you think that thing is real, or maybe it's his older brother. It's his older brother <laughs> in a in a costume. Uh, but yeah, um, like the, you, the like the the thing, it just it's just walking around like these palm trees, and then it, it begins to like break into this this run somewhere, mm. as yeah, as like it knows it's being watched, so it just like kind of like disappears after that, um. Shilly says that the, the swamp was covered by like a foot of water, so yeah, he was like, "Okay." Are, like walking through all that brush so easily, is, you know. An yeah, thing, so. <laughs> I mean, it's a big something. It's a big something. Pretty much. Like people were like, "Okay, so it's it's definitely not a guy in, in a gorilla suit because there was water. You had to brush. There's no way a, a human could run through all that at as fast as it was going." Um. So, a lot of people, specifically, um, a lot of biologists, they're like, "This skunky does not exist." Okay. Now. People can, like, of course, say that they see, like, magical creatures or cryptids everywhere from time to time. But, like, this video, it, like, sparked something. Mm -hmm. So, it's like, it gave, like, evidence of there being something out there. It's Like, there's probably, like, a giant, hairy, gorilla, ape-looking thing that looks like a skunk. Um... Wandering around Florida slash Texas, um, just smelling up and breaking into people's homes. I just love that part. I don't know why. Just, just <laughs> he's a stalker skunk ape, and he's who breaks hungry. into your home. <laughs> That's the truth. You should. We'll post that link too in the uh. In, in yeah, notes. in the notes section of the video yeah. so people can look at it. I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um a lot of people are saying like this is like this is weak evidence. Like you like a lot of people because like, you know, yeah, skeptics out there, of oh, course. Yeah, of course. Who are just like I mean, I 
probably don't believe in a skunk ape, but I probably believe more in the Bigfoot. But that's yeah, that's about me. Um, but they're just like, hey, look, look at this video. You can't you can't tell me that's not something that's out there. Um, but yeah, a lot of people love says skunk ape. Um, like okay, particularly everybody in Florida. Who lives in Florida? Who comes from Florida? They were born in Florida. They know all about Skunk Ape. You know why? Because it's, I guess, apparently it's an unofficial mascot for, like, the wilderness in rural culture. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw something about a skunk fest. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Let me see. I bet you I could find this real quick. Yes, I can. Real, real quick. And guess when it takes place. Wait, no. That's a different one. Okay, never mind. Let me write Skunk Ape Fest. Because there's a Skunk Fest, but I think it's a different thing. When is your festival, Skunk Ape? people i need to know to make this a lot more funnier than it is um god i don't know so it took place in october i'm pretty sure it takes place in well october. i mean that sounds fun but i it sounds also yeah. ridiculous brian <laughs> they give they also give tours of um i guess the where skunk place like check out um skunk ape dot info. I'm, I'm it's so <laughs> not only do they have web a website, they have apparel. So if you want some <laughs> skunk ape finger feet or some trucker hats that have a skunk ape on it, or you got a you want a skunk ape hunting permit, hey, this is your place to go. And yes, I am giving you a free shout out. <laughs> Check out the skunk ape. It, like they got so much. Um, I'm trying to find. I want to find out. They probably don't have it. But it is what it is. Um, I was pretty sure I saw something about skunk ape festival, and I got really excited. And I was like, "Yes, I think it like it takes place. Of course, it takes place in Florida." But I read that it's like. Whoever makes like the best skunk ape mask or something like that, they win a, a contest. It's um, it's real funny. Oh, and this skunk ape has another name. Okay. Of course, it's uh, it's called a Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's called it's it's yes, Bigfoot. Um it's called the Mayaka Ape. Um I'm not sure if that is anything, but whatever. Um I just like the pictures of it and I like I liked the video of it too. Okay. Um <clears throat> Well you'll keep looking for some more videos and, and we'll leave that in the the listeners to decide if they think it's something or not. 
<laughs> I bet you anybody from Florida would be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, of we know course, about skunk eggs. Yeah, but that's Florida people. So. <laughs> this is true, too. It's just like West Virginia, okay, with all their cryptids. And, like... Mothman's the only legit one. Okay, Mothman and maybe the Flatwoods Monster and maybe the... Gra- I do like the Flatwoods Monster, but the Flatwoods Monster's just an alien. Yeah, see... Yeah, yeah, you're it right. Didn't, it didn't stay. It just came here to look cute in its little alien dress. <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, um, skunk cape. Look it up if you don't believe. If you don't believe, you better start believing because it's a thing. <laughs> and that's what I got. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, and always being here with us. And- everybody yes yes we do and happy october happy october